All right. Verses we're going to be in this morning are in 1 John, the first four verses of chapter 1. And so, while you're turning there, a little background on this epistle from John. So, one thing that we'll notice is, in the beginning of this, it doesn't have an introduction. He's not introducing himself to people or even labeling a specific church. So, this is more of a general epistle at the beginning of this. Many of the letters of the apostles were meant to be circular, but there are also some very personal ways that he communicates in this that makes it sound like he probably knows this specific church that he's writing this to to begin with. So, as we read it, we're going to see through the inspiration of the Spirit what he's doing at the beginning of this. It's a response to some bad doctrine. As you read on in 1 John, you will hear about people who have left the church, went outside of it, and are influencing those that are still in the church. And so John is writing this to reaffirm their beliefs. So one of the most common threats to the new church was the beginning of Gnosticism. It hadn't completely come together, I think, till about the second century. But Gnosticism had several different teachings. They didn't have like a central doctrine. They did believe that material things were evil and only spiritual things could be good and that affected the way that they talked about Jesus if they acknowledged him because in their mind he couldn't have been a man and been God and been holy or if he was a man, vice versa. And so we see that these people they're causing debate, they're causing uncertainty and confusion within the church that John is writing to. So, they left to go and do their own beliefs, and they were preaching that Gnostic knowledge was a secret knowledge, that we all had some divinity in us, and we just had to, we just had to figure it out, and you could save yourself, basically, through spiritual enlightenment. It was more self-revelation than it was anything from the scriptures or anything that would have been orthodox for us. So, I thought this was a good place to be because we have a lot of noise around us today. We can find a lot of the same things. Studying through this, I started thinking of some of the new age things that are happening right now, and it's funny that they think it's progressive and new, but it's right here. They're doing the same thing, same beliefs, kind of pseudo-spirituality they were trying to get into. All right, as we start reading, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you may also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Okay, so to begin with, this is a strong opening about what he has witnessed and what the apostles have witnessed. So he starts out and the first things that he goes through in verse 1 are proof of Jesus' humanity. Okay, 
we've heard him, we've seen him, we've looked upon him, and our hands have handled him. He's saying we actually touched him. We walked with him. We were with him in the flesh. And he's also speaking of the authority that the apostles were writing in because he's saying we were with him. We were witnesses. He's refuting the claim that Jesus was only spirit. And spirit can't be handled, can't be related with in that way. But as he goes forward and he gets into verse 2, he describes Jesus' divinity. So he refutes that he was only a man who did good things, had some special spiritual insight, which was some of the stuff they were trying to So concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So the word of life, the word of life title comes from a couple of different names that we've heard Jesus refer to himself or others refer to Jesus as. In the Gospel of John, he refers to him as the word. Jesus refers to himself as the life. And so this title is the life and word referring to the eternal, everlasting, uncreated life and word of God as in directly from the Father. So eternal word of God and the eternal life with God before anything was and ruling over everything. As it says, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. In Psalm 19, 7 through 10, I should put this in here because it's got some interesting verses about the Word of God, God's instructions. So the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight to the living. The reference for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than the honey dripping from the comb. So John is describing Jesus as the word manifested, the word made manifest, and that they saw and bore witness and are declaring what they witnessed, what they saw. The eternal word of life, which was with God in the beginning, made known he could be seen, touched, walked with, listened to. They got to hear Jesus teach. And, you know, Jesus was not just a man with special knowledge. And he wasn't just a spirit or just a divinity without a body, without a physical body. Jesus is able to sympathize with his creation fully because of his experiences as a person. He was physically hurt. He was spiritually, emotionally. He was betrayed. He was ridiculed, beaten. And all of that for us, for nothing that he did on his own. Jesus was the God-man. He was fully God and fully man. And we can't take away his divinity, and we can't take away his humanity. We have to have both of those. Because without being human... He couldn't have experienced the pain and the betrayal and the things that we do, but he couldn't have died and been the perfect sacrifice because no human could do that. 
as God, oh, as only a man, there would never be an acceptable sacrifice. Fully God and fully man. Because if he wasn't fully God, he couldn't have lived the perfect life and done the things and taught the way that he had. So the Gnostic idea that you have to separate those was completely wrong. It was both. Jesus was fully God and fully man manifested. And he's saying here, we heard, saw, looked upon, and handled him. We witnessed this. John makes sure to tell them that this is historical, that this is something that happened to him and to the other apostles. Okay? He states, we the apostles saw this. So he isn't the only sole witness in the case. You know, there's a lineup of people that can be referenced or talked to at this point. We see Paul use eyewitness explanation in Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read 1 through 11. He writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. So in Paul's letter, he's saying the same thing. He says he appeared to Cephas to the twelve, and then to five hundred brothers, most of whom are still alive. So again, go ask them. Go ask the other witnesses that saw this. This is more than some mythology that they've come up with. And this is something that they're even telling people, test it. Go, go ask. Here's people who can verify what we saw. We cannot believe like the world does. Most of the world will say, well, Jesus, you know, that works for you. But it doesn't work for somebody else. Maybe Buddha works for somebody else. Maybe there's some other, their truth that works for them. But that is not what we know to be true. We have one path, one Lord, one Savior, who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And there can be no question, or we cannot give even an inch in that conversation. We are not of the world that says that all paths or multiple paths can lead to God. There's one God made manifest to us in Jesus. One truth. John repeats a few times in here that he saw, witnessed, touched all of these things. That this is not a myth, a superstition, not some secret spiritual knowledge of enlightenment that came to them. This was what they experienced. The truth I witnessed by men who were then proclaiming and declaring what they saw. 
So there's no question of what he's saying here, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Our faith is not one of speculation, and I think that's important to hear too. It's historical and it's proven. It was proven by eyewitnesses who wrote down what they saw and by others who could verify what these eyewitnesses saw. So this is not speculation and this is not superstition. All right, in verse 3, we'll go forward. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So fellowship, which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, like we said, they're declaring what they experience to the church. They know they can trust this account. They know that they're not acting on feelings and emotions and this is how I feel. No, they saw it. That's what they're declaring. And then he goes on. He says, you can have fellowship with us. Now, if he stopped there, that's not that great of a deal. I mean, it's okay. You know, we can all have fellowship. Everybody can be in a group or something. But ultimately, and sometimes we want to be in those things, and sometimes people try to get us into those things. I don't think I officially joined any club in high school, but I tagged along with all of them. There are different groups, and sometimes we see groups that we want to be in. And the fellowship of the believers is great. I love the church. I love coming together and knowing each other and praying with each other and learning with each other. The Word of God, it's amazing, but... That is not what he is saying when he says you can have fellowship with us. He's not saying you can have fellowship with the cool kids. You can have fellowship with the most popular, the most athletic. No, so what is he saying? If we continue on, luckily he didn't stop there. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. This is not just some club and some group of people at the time. In Matthew Henry's commentary on these verses, he says, there may be some personal distinctions and peculiarities, but there is a communion or a common participation of privilege and dignity that belongs to all saints, from the highest apostle to the lowest believer. John is not saying you will have fellowship with us to enjoy our company. He's saying if you have fellowship with us because we have fellowship with Jesus, that's what you're getting, and that's what he's telling them. He's not saying come join our group. He is saying if you have fellowship with us, we truly have fellowship with Jesus. That's where our fellowship is. So that's what he's inviting him to. Do you understand what you can have? That fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. You know, we've been studying Psalm 34 on Wednesdays with Ben. He's been leading us through at a record pace. I think he got through two verses last week. But Psalm 34 was written by David whenever he was being chased. He was being hunted. He had just escaped Abimelech and was hiding out with his followers and not in the greatest situation. He had been anointed king, but he wasn't king yet. Saul was still king, and David was having to hide from that. But in the midst of that situation, in Psalm 34, Psalm 34, the whole thing is a psalm of praise and of worship. In verse 8, David praises the Lord, and he's calling others to praise with him. He says, Oh, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who trusts in him. Taste and see. That's what John is saying. Come fellowship with God, with Jesus. The true Jesus. The Jesus that they declared, that they witnessed, and that they knew. That's who John is saying. You want to come and be a part of this. You do not want to miss what we're doing here. Taste and see. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. And what do you get when you trust the Lord? You get joy, peace, strength. The weight of our sin lifted away. Right? Jesus says my burden is light. The physical life is going to continue to cause us struggles, but we do not have to carry the burdens that we carried before. We don't have to carry the guilt. Okay? Come taste and see. Come fellowship with Jesus. And this is what you're going to have. This is what comes. We're fellowshipping with Jesus. We're fellowshipping with the one above all creation who put himself with his creation, humbled himself, and died taking our punishment so that we could have fellowship with him. And that's the life abundant that we're promised in Scripture with Jesus. And that leads us into verse 4. So, in verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. I read, uh, and I should have wrote down who I read it from, but we're talking about this section. And they said the message of the gospel is not to cause us dread. Right? The message of the gospel is not a burden. It doesn't cause dread, fear, or burden on us unless we hear it and deny it, because that's exactly what it is. I mean, the gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means, right? The good news, not the, oh boy, this is going to be rough news. This is the good news, and flip side of that is there's bad news, but the gospel is not the bad news. But this is why we share. This is why we teach these things, and we learn these things, and we study There's no joy and no peace to be found in those false teachers and the ones who are putting more burden on people by saying, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher. I've heard that all day long. Jesus was a good guy. He was a good teacher. But you have to be good. You have to live a good life. You have to continue to grow. And we do. We do have to continue to grow and be better. But if we're not growing in Christ, we're never going to get there. Right? We need to grow in Christ because without Him, we have no hope. He is the hope. He is the good news. The ultimate truth and the authority over everything, over all of creation. And He came to the earth and He chose us. That is our joy. That is our joy. People who turned against Him, whose hearts are wicked and full of sin, And God came and he chose us. He chose every one of us in here that's saved and everyone who's listening and everyone that's ever been in the family of God. Chose and then bought our salvation with Jesus' blood. That is our joy. That is that your joy may be full. If you understand these things, your joy is going to be full. We didn't deserve any of that. We deserve the punishment that our sin gets us. Jesus came and saved people 
who have no desire to know their creator outside of him. None of us given our own without his spirit in us would follow him. The greatness of God shown in creation, the power shown in the resurrection of his son, and the mercy, grace, and love shown to all who have Christ as our greatest source of joy. There's nothing more that we can need. And we, again, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to question. He is saying, we saw this. We handled him. We are declaring it to you so that you can fellowship with him, and that is where your joy will be full. And that is the promise we have. That is what we look forward to as members of God's family, is not just the fellowship that we get here, but the fellowship with Jesus and the fellowship with God, the Father. I pray that we have that joy, that we truly understand, that we take some time to think about what's been done for us and the price that was paid and who Jesus is, and just really think about that, and then see how our joy goes, if we are really thinking about that. You know, we can't help but be joyful, or praiseful, 